Okay, we are ready to go. Just let me, let me know when you're ready. Okay, anytime is fine. Great, so um, welcome to the This is Clinical Engineering podcast, a conversational space to talk about clinical engineering, to deconstruct the professional profile of a clinical engineer and identify key skills that any clinical engineering professional should adopt to produce the best result possible. My name is Luis and I will be your host for today. Before we begin, it's very important that you consider this podcast as a space for opinion based on our experience of the, ex of the experiences of our invitees. For the same reason, this podcast does not intend to represent any, of, any opinion of groups, companies, and or institutions that our invitees relate to. What we intend to do here is to share experiences and good practices of skilled professionals to help our clinical engineering colleagues to grow as professionals and to learn from others. And speaking of clinical engineering, let me introduce you to today's very special guest, Dr. Larry Fenninko. Dr. Fenninko is currently an adjunct professor within the biomedical engineering program at the Milwaukee School of Engineering, where he teaches a variety of courses in design, biomechanics, biostatistics, physiology, and electrical circuits. Prior to joining MSOE full-time in 1998, Dr. Fenninko spent 22 years working in three different hospital systems managing in-house clinical engineering and health technology management programs. In 2017, Dr. Fenninko was inducted into the ACCE Hall of Fame in recognition of his pioneering work in developing a medical device inventory inclusion algorithm that significantly reduced the maintenance and regulatory burden for many hospitals throughout the U.S. and abroad. Dr. Fenico received his uh, B.S. and M.S. degrees from the Milwaukee School of Engineering and the Ph.D. in Engineering from the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. He is also a registered professional engineer and certified clinical engineer. Without any further ado, Dr. Fenico, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Oh, thank you, Luis. Very Thank you very much for having me and allowing me to share some insights from the years. It's a great, great honor to host you today here at the show where we um, will basically try to have a conversation to try and, and understand your career path, your key skills, and to deconstruct this um, uh, profile so that we can help others through this learning process. So, so first of all, tell us uh, what you're doing today. Uh, what are you um, what are your thoughts on this COVID situation down in, in Milwaukee? Uh, well, it's, it's incredibly disturbing, obviously, not only in Wisconsin, but throughout the world. I don't think we've seen anything like this, uh, surely in my lifetime. And uh, it's referred to as a novel virus for a reason. We've just never seen anything like this before. Uh, it's always incredibly humbling to me uh, what Mother Nature can come up with. There's just... Uh, a very twisted elegance about viruses in general, how they can, uh, again, not even living things, yet how they can create such havoc and damage uh, to the human body. And uh, so there's a tremendous amount of work going on throughout the world. And we just, I guess, I'm just hoping that we'll, we'll get to the place where we'll, we'll get a handle on this thing before, uh, before too long. But uh, we've, I think we unfortunately have a way to go yet, and it's having a profound effect on many of our colleagues that are working in hospitals at this time. Well, big shout out to all clinical engineering professionals and other health uh, professionals that are doing their best to keep uh, everybody safe. And, and, and of course, 
as efficient as possible our healthcare systems around the globe. Sure. Uh, I've been hearing a lot of, of information and status of uh, various countries through through IFMBE Clinical Engineering Division, which uh, we appreciate very much uh, to collaborate with. And well, it's a tough situation for everyone. And clinical engineers are not the exception when it comes to being at the forefront. So how are clinical engineers doing in the hospitals that you have contact with and the schools that you have contact with? So how, how are they doing? How are they living and facing all this pandemic? I think uh, like many of their, their colleagues, the clinicians are, uh, there's just a lot of stress, a lot of fatigue, uh, a lot of anxiety. Uh, they're living and breathing and uh, you know, having to go into these areas to do their work. And uh, they're just as susceptible as the caregivers almost in uh, coming in contact with, with potentially very sick people. I think it's just this, this, this stress, uh, it's just very, very burdensome for them. Uh, many of our internship programs, not only at the clinician level for our nursing programs, but our engineers as well, they've been, they, they've, the hospitals that they were uh, going to work in have all shut down the internship so the students aren't able to get into the hospital environments to complete their internship programs, uh, which is kind of limiting and uh, very understandable though, obviously as well. But it's a very, uh, very disturbing time, I think, for anybody on the front lines working in these environments. Um, very, very scary. I agree. And uh, I've uh, talked to a couple of clinical engineers that have uh, you know, been in contact with the virus and have had the virus before. And oh. it's, it's, it's frustrating for, for them as well because it's, uh, it's really a matter, uh, a matter of you know, self-care and self-consciousness of everyone just uh, just being there for everyone. And it's, it's really an empathic uh, thing to do, just uh, to be, you know, just observing on, on, on the back end of what's going on and, and, you know, hearing the stories about people getting sick and not being able to see their kids or, or their oh, families. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, it's really aspiring. And, and I hope, I really, really sincerely hope that this situation gets, you know, uh, over as soon as possible, right? So, uh, so speaking of, of clinical engineering, you know, I would like to start our conversation uh, by asking the same question that I, that I intend to ask a hundred times to a hundred clinical engineering and recognized uh, professionals. So uh, Dr. Larry Feninkel, uh, for you, what is clinical engineering? So what are the main objectives, activities, aspirations uh, for someone who practices clinical engineering? Well, early on, as many of our listeners know, uh, clinical engineering is a subspecialty of biomedical engineering and biomedical engineering by its very definition uh, basically has created a, a liaison or with the interface between engineering technology and medicine. And when we bring that subspecialty into the hospital environments, which is what clinical engineering is, we are effectively those liaisons with that interface between the, the technology and medicine. And um, we're still a fundamentally and always have been a service focused operation within healthcare. Uh, we're there primarily uh, from our beginnings 50 years ago to currently is to maintain and support the technology to the absolute best level that we can in terms of safety, efficacy, performance, uh, in terms of also speed. Uh, the healthcare providers, uh, they, they become so incredibly dependent on our technology that when it goes awry or it's not working, uh, that creates some very understandable stress as well as some serious safety concerns 
for both the patients and the clinicians. So uh, when things do go awry, especially for the in-house operations, one of our basic objectives and benefits is that we've been able to respond to these problems, these emergencies very, very quickly. Uh, many departments feel like they're in firefighting modes uh, because literally they are. When something goes awry, they get a stat call. They have to often drop what they're doing, run to the unit, run to wherever it might be, and uh, assist and get that technology up and is functioning as quickly as possible. Uh, so the quality of the work, the speed, and then the ongoing ever-present issue, I think, for us all around the world is cost. How do we support this technology at the lowest reasonable cost, but still satisfy all of the requirements uh, of safety, efficacy, performance? Uh, it's not a trivial task because this technology is not inexpensive. Getting parts, as many of you, and I'm sure all around the world know, uh, you might have the, the greatest technical staff on the planet, but if you can't get the needed parts, you're dead in the water. You're, 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 your effectiveness it can be severely compromised. So um, uh, in that same regard, and as an interface discipline, uh, not only do we have to be experts on the technology, obviously, we need to know the technology inside out and backwards, but we also, in order to be effective liaisons, we need to know a lot about medicine as well. And uh, that's their language. The language of clinicians is very different than the language of engineering and science. So we have to learn their terminology uh, as much as we can learn about pathology, the disease that they're, they're treating, uh, puts us in just a much, much better position to advocate and to assist and support their uh, incredible needs. So speaking about the, the clinicians, uh, healthcare professionals, which are, let's say, our end users, our customers per se, uh, because we, I mean, for them, the patient is a person. For us, the patient is a, is a machine, is a, is a medical equipment, medical device. So I would like to get your thoughts on convincing a clinician about the true value a clinical engineer or medical equipment maintenance specialist brings to healthcare. Uh, and this is a personal opinion. In, in Latin America, it's fairly common, as I'm sure as other parts in the world, that the clinical engineering department is, con is considered more than a, of an expense rather than an investment. So uh, would you have any, let's say, tips or, or an experience that you would like to share on how to showcase the true value of clinical engineers to, let's say, the medical director or even the, the general manager of the hospital in order for them to invest more human resources and money to that, to that department? Excellent question, Luis, and that's one that's really uh, effectively plaguing us since our inception. It's the, precisely the very issues I was dealing with 45 years ago when I first started, and uh, it's, uh, it's still with us now. And some of the reasons I believe that is so uh, is that effectively, as a service entity, the more effective we have become in terms of supporting the technology, keeping it at an optimal level, um, the more invisible we become. We just, uh, it's natural that if your car, your TV works every single time, it's natural to simply take it for granted. Well, it always, always is going to work. Uh, in healthcare, uh, because we are quite a different breed of individuals compared to clinicians, 
they often don't know what we do. There's a mystique and kind of a mystery surrounding our presence. And they're just those people that fix stuff and do things often with no clue on how it's done. Um, but we, we, we kind of become a little bit invisible in that regard. And um, one of the things that I found to be one of the, probably the absolute best way to keep our presence, because our, our visibility, the irony is that the time we get the most visibility is when all hell's breaking loose, when things fail, equipment is not working, and you know, you're being screamed at and yelled at, what's wrong with you people? So you got a lot of visibility in that moment, but it's a negative, negative kind of visibility. On the other hand, what I found to kind of balance that out uh, was just the practice I, I started when I first started, and I didn't even know that I was doing it. I would just, we refer to it now as just doing rounds. I would just, before the start of every day, I would just walk around to the different departments, the ICUs, PT, OB, and just check in with the staff there, just see is anything going on, anything wrong. Um, and without even knowing I was doing it, um, I started to develop a relationship and they had, they started to develop a relationship with me to the point where there was times where I wasn't even getting a service call. And I said, well, why didn't you call me about this? Well, we knew you'd be here anyway, eventually. So you start to build a rapport, I think, with the clinicians at that point. And what I found out really quite many years later, only by kind of accident, I didn't even know it was evolving at the time, was that I was demonstrating some sense of empathy toward the clinicians and their needs. And uh, they started to see, because that seems to be a common denominator between the caregivers, people that you know, treat people as a calling and our, and our technical people, but empathy seemed to be that common link that if they recognize that you're there to support them and their needs, you genuinely care about the equipment when it's not working, they, they'll kind of bring us in and advocate us, advocate for us more. Uh, if they're at some meeting and some administrator would try to argue that, well, we can cut their budget, uh, you might get a director of nursing, a director manager of an ICU, the OR, say, oh, don't you dare touch those people. You know, we need those guys, uh, and they help us out in that regard. So um, I think the kind of goal is how do we become visible in a, in a positive way, and those, uh, those, those, those rounds uh, – seemed to be a very effective way of doing that when I didn't even know they were doing it. Uh, many, many places, especially in the States, many years later, often tended to discourage that because it was ultimately viewed as not productive time. Uh, so how do, you, how do you document it in the CMMS? And uh, how do you, you surely aren't going to charge somebody, you know, $50 for stopping in to say hello in the morning and how are you doing and how's the equipment doing? So, um, but it's an incredibly value-added uh, thing that uh, seemed to just, I, I can't tell you how much mileage I got out of uh, doing that kind of thing. When I didn't even realize I was doing it, it was just something to, to do on a, on a regular basis. So there may be and other ways of doing it, but I'm just not sure what it might be. So, no, it's, 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 uh, I would say it's, it's really logical, the approach, because at the end, when you speak about an organization, you talk about stakeholders, you talk about people that are users, people that are buyers, people that are administrators. And at the end of the day, you have to build relationships with that team. And if that team acknowledges that your, that your job or your, or your responsibilities match in a result that, you know, is not only yours, but also in a much macro scenario, uh, I, I, I see the resemblance of making people feel empathic about 
you know, not only the clinical engineer understands that if, you know, the device is malfunctioning, it will be bad for the patient, but also the medical staff acknowledges that if the clinical engineer is under equipped with test devices, with HR, you know, they will have those problems. So it totally makes sense. And, uh, Right now, you said it, said something that I consider to be really important is cutting their budget. You know, it's at the end of the day, something that I've talked to uh, a lot of clinical engineers about is that we seem to forget that a hospital is a business, that a hospital is a company. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's private or public, because at the end of the day, the funding will come from somewhere. But it's really important to acknowledge that in an economic scenario, we deal with scarcity of resources. And for this reason, it's, it's something that should be measured in a sense of improvement. So uh, if, if you just go to, your, go to your clinical engineering department and wait for people to call you and don't even record how many times they call you and analyze if, if indeed there was a failure when they called you and it was urgent, blah, blah. So I totally get it. And, and, and I think it's, it's something really important, which brings me to my next question. Um, so speaking of empathy, speaking of results driven, uh, what are the most relevant skills that you consider someone must acquire to practice clinical engineering and why? I'm sure that you've uh, thought about this question maybe on your early years as a clinical engineer where you thought that maybe you should have learned a lot more in college as, as most of us do. So what are the things that you think would be great to include in a, in, a, in a bachelor's program or in a master's program in order for a clinical engineer to enhance the results. Okay, well, fundamentally, as the way uh, many engineering programs are currently structured anyway, is that there's a uh, inherent systems focus to engineering in general. So not only learning the fundamentals of circuits and math and physics, chemistry, mechanics, uh, the, obviously the fundamentals of instrumentation and electronics, we kind of assume that we, we have to have some background uh, in those areas. But it's also ultimately, I think, the ability to abstract and to problem solve that uh, most uh, or many uh, bachelor's degree programs hope to try to get to the students to some uh, minimal level of uh, when, they, when they're confronted with something new and novel, uh, rather than just trying to look something up on the internet and Google something, which uh, there's often a lot of information out there, but it may not be the correct and right and in, correct information for your particular issue. Uh, knowing how to uh, find answers, how to find information, how to problem solve uh, is a big, big piece of that. Um, but especially in the hospital environment, again, you can have, I've had a number of incredibly great gifted technical people, uh, but where they often were limited is in some of their uh, communication skills and their ability to uh, interface and acknowledge and work with other people that are especially different than them. Uh, of course, if you get, you know, they could, they, could, uh, they could talk all day long with other technical people, but when they had to communicate with a clinician, a non-technical person, that's where they may have uh, fallen down a little bit or just simply not informing a, a OR manager that, uh, oh yeah, your balloon pump is all back and ready to, ready to go. They would just often fix it, drop it off and then leave and without communicating what the current status of the machine is. So communication uh, is a big, big thing, but it's not, it's something that still is outside of the comfort zone for many of us on the, on the hard technical side of things. It's just something that I think uh, we're, we're kind of, we, we evolved in a different way 
we're more into things and technology than the people and talking. And so there's just uh, some personality differences that seem to be generalized uh, that uh, create some issues for us. But uh, uh, clearly the technical skills, the system skills, communication, and then learning as much about your customers and the clinician, the clinical medical side of the house as you possibly can, can go a long, long way as well. Uh, it's hard to empathize with, uh, you know, uh, someone on a ventilator if you don't understand uh, different types of pulmonary diseases and, and how, how the lungs function and how they can be damaged and how they can be injured and why these machines are so critical to treating some of these very, very sick patients. The same thing with any of our invasive monitoring uh, procedures. You know, how does how does the heart generate blood pressure, uh, and what are these uh, symbols and these these waveforms, the metrics? What do they mean clinically? And uh, again, that just puts us in a much much better position to support and, and help them. Regarding, uh, you mentioned right now five that I really, really am happy that you're, the, you're, you're addressing this, this uh, topics. So system-focused, uh, let's say, mindset, right? So, so uh, a systematic approach to, you know, activities, things, and, and understand that each of the, of the parts that we're now addressing are, much, are components to a system. And, and uh, I, I really feel, let's say, I, that the clinical engineer feels really identified to this because at the end, it, it, it's really related to num point number two that you mentioned, which is problem solving. So a systemic approach, systematic approach is beneficial to a problem solving scenario, especially under, under high pressure, which you uh, addressed earlier. For example, we're, we're recognized or we're mostly recognized when, you know, all hell is breaking loose. And, and especially something happened in Mexico 10 years ago with H1N1 and is now happening again with coronavirus that I would like to address in order for you to get your opinion. So around 10 years ago, when H1N1 hit our country, you know, there was a call for inventories, uh, you know, from the, from the president. He said, hey, like, we need to know how many devices are there uh, so we can know uh, what's going to take to do a contingency plan and disaster preparedness strategy. Unfortunately, uh, Mexico has no um, official nomenclature for both private and public hospitals. <clears throat> so we tend to use different names to call the same device. So at the end, at the end of the day, we didn't know how many devices were there, uh, in which status they were functional wise. And also, uh, we didn't really know how many ventilators needed to be procured. And we ended up buying technology that maybe wasn't going to be needed. Uh, ten years after, as you might have seen, not only in Mexico but in a lot of countries, we have the same question. So, how many devices are there? Do we have enough? Uh, where are they located? And and I saw this article not so long ago that it said that the U.S. as an example, of course, it could be applicable to other countries, that the U.S. could pretty much um, solve solve or partially solve the the scarcity of ventilators if we knew how many ventilators were in each of the hospitals so that we can know which ventilators go to which, which area. So what brings me to these uh, two areas, as long as communication skills, technical skills, and learning as much as you can of your customer, is that my hypothesis of this uh, low recognition of our profile among the, the healthcare professional is that we are not introducing the message in an effective way. It's mostly 
a communi communicational thing that's that is keeping us in the basement and this, and this is something literal uh because in, in, in latin america we've seen many of the clinical engineering departments being in the basement uh and and not, there's nothing wrong with the basement but at the end of the day you're, you're talking about recognition and, and talking about investment to uh the, the departments that need, you know, infrastructure and a lot of things. So my personal hypothesis, and, and, and yet again, this is a personal opinion, is that since we do not have enhanced communication or management skills, we tend to fail on showing what the value of clinical engineering really is through metrics, through indicators, through performance, etc. So I really wanted to get your thoughts on this. What do you think? Do you maybe agree, don't agree, could this be maybe the best baseline of another project or program, problem, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I totally agree. And uh, within the States, a number of years ago, many, many of the uh, clinical engineering departments in the state, they're, uh, they're guided and almost dictated to by the government, the Joint Commission and our uh, CMMS. Uh, when they say to do something, hospitals often have to jump and do something. And, uh, the CEs in the U.S. had some major challenges years ago uh, in that we didn't really have enough justification to defend uh, what we're doing in the hospital. Many, many, virtually everybody has a, a computerized maintenance management system that they enter in work orders, they use it for scheduling, but for the most part, uh, and they still have some very significant issues with labeling, uh, you know, some places might call a ventilator a respirator. Uh, an event or, you know, so that, that that nomenclature, those issues makes it difficult to really get a handle on some things. But that's a lot of that's been continues to be addressed. But the biggest problem we still have is these incredibly powerful systems and the literally probably hundreds of thousands of work orders and PM documents that we have. All we've been essentially doing with it is descriptive inquiries. How many PMs did we do a month? How much did it cost us to maintain balloon pumps? Uh, we, we don't really do any kind of uh, interrogating or data mining, if you will, of the, the, the treasure trove of information that's potentially embedded in these systems. And um, if we could get at that and start doing more of that, uh, then we could start to hopefully generate some, some real significant uh, results on what our value is. Uh, and this is where we could start to demonstrate uh, how, how our presence allows us to cost avoid, to save money by not having to spend so much money. Uh, comparing uh, you know, statistically significant differences in results between us servicing ventilators versus having the manufacturer come in and service the ventilators. Um, we can count a lot of things, but again, we, we haven't really brought to bear a lot of inferential statistics and powerful analytical tools to all of this data. So we are very, very limited in, on how we can defend and justify ourselves. We've got a ton of anecdotal accounts. Everybody has anecdotal accounts on, well, we saved this and we did that, but um, very, very little hardcore scientific, uh, statistically uh, uh, provable, uh, claims that we were able to make just because we, we have not brought the, the skill set to analyzing the data in the way in which we have. Uh, descriptive statistics, uh, all it does is allow us to count things. <laughs> you know, we can't really make inferences or test hypotheses based on, well, I did 
200 PMs this month. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we need to bring a little bit more uh, uh, scientific rigor, I think, and analytical rigor to the data that we have that would help pull us out of the basement, um, you know, at least figuratively anyway. And relate, relating to this COVID-19 scenario, how do you think that uh, with, the, with the data, without the data, with this uh, management skills or not with this management skills, how do you think that clinical engineers are, I mean, at least for me, are, are most more important than ever right now? Because, uh, I mean, which medical practice does not relate to technology these days? So I would like to know, what are your thoughts on the clinical engineering profile related to this pandemic? How do you think we fit into what's going on? And, and, and most importantly, how, what do you think we're doing in order for this situation uh, to be over as soon as possible? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I'm not sure if I really fully have an answer. I know at least in many of the hospitals in the States, we often had a, an overabundance of equipment. You know, we had thousands and thousands of infusion pumps and only maybe half of them are being utilized. So there is just an often of excess of technology in many places and um, because we never really handle, had a handle on utilization. So it was always, let's have five cars in the garage in case, you know, four of them don't start. We'll have at least one that'll run. Uh, with the COVID right now, and especially in uh, the ICUs, you know, a lot of those excess capacity issues are not there anymore. I mean, uh, they may not have enough ventilators. They may not have enough pumps. Not uncommon for many of these incredibly sick patients to be on multiple pumps at the same time and you have more critically ill people, uh, you might be running out of these things. So, um, you know, optimizing the, the, uh, the uptime on this technology is more important than ever, but, uh, you know, PMs are probably just going out the window. You just don't have the time. You have to turn these vents around as soon as you can. And so they may not be getting inspected. They may not be getting uh, you know, the filters and the tubing and the consumable supplies that they need to have replaced when they should. Uh, batteries on the vents, uh, infusion pumps might not be able to get replaced as often as they should be so that we might have, uh, you know, equipment failures going on, uh, creating some serious injuries, if not deaths, but um, most people may not know about it. You know, if you mm -hmm. died in the hospital right now, well, you were sick. The fact that the equipment may have contributed or wasn't there for you when you needed it. That's the kind of realities that, uh, you know, the general public, they don't want to hear that kind of stuff and neither do us. But, but for, for those of us that have worked in hospitals, uh, we've all seen our share of horror stories, uh, unfortunately, where things went very, very wrong and a piece of technology was involved or it wasn't there when it needed to or it did something in, inappropriate and uh, the patient didn't make it. And uh, so that's the kind of stuff we want to avoid, obviously, at all costs. And especially with this kind of crisis going on, uh, the, uh, the dependence on the technology is even probably greater than it has ever been because we're dealing with, again, the incredibly sick patients, uh, much more powerful vasoactive drugs that you can't just generally administer with a, a IV drip. You need a dedicated pump to administer some of these very uh, powerful uh, pharmaceuticals. So um, yeah, it's uh, more than ever. I think we may be, uh, maybe, maybe appreciating us a little bit more, especially at this time. 
Indeed, uh, there's a lot of, of challenges. Uh, you said a human resource related, time-based or constricted related uh, budget-wise as well. Because one would think that the hospitals are making a lot of money right now because everybody is getting sick or, or whatever the, the, the concept may be, but that is not the case. I mean, no. um, a lot of hospitals are going bankrupt and uh, people seem to forget that, you know, a hospital is a business, a company is a business. And these companies or, or hospitals have different types of patients. And one of the most profitable patients are the ones that have scheduled surgery. And doctors don't want to go to hospital because they don't want to, they don't want to get sick or their family sick. Okay. Patients don't want to schedule surgeries that are not needed because they fear that they will get COVID. So that's, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a decrease of, of, of sales, if you would see it like this, in, um, in a company. And it's, and it's a huge problem. And, and I think that, that one of these uh, days, uh, we might see hospitals being bankrupt and, and that is fairly, fairly uh, unfortunate, not only for restaurants, for cinemas and, and you know, all sure. of the businesses that have been affected, but also to healthcare institutions. Um, I would like to ask you as well, what are, what do you consider are three major challenges uh, clinical engineering pro professionals have today? Uh, you said it yourself, uh, communication, uh, trying to communicate. So is there, any notable challenge? Maybe you went through uh, uh, an important uh, or, or, or maybe a notable uh, experience on your career that you would want to share us that maybe demonstrated you that was a major challenge for CE professionals. Well, uh, a major one that continues to be, especially in the States going on right now, is a whole, uh, what we're referring to now as a right to repair. And this is something that uh, the profession was struggling with again 40, 45 years ago on getting service documentation, uh, service manuals, di diagnostic tools on many of the devices. And um, uh, it was a struggle years ago, but it's become even more sophisticated and bothersome now because many of the diagnostic tools we need are software related, firmware. We may need specialized test equipment, specialized cables. Uh, you may need access to the manufacturer's website and cloud in order to download and to do the diagnostics. And if you don't have a service contract or if they won't allow you access to that uh, critical information, that, can, that just that, uh, is very, very stifling and prevents very skilled people from doing their needed work. And uh, especially with the ventilator issues going on right now, um, we still have a number of, of uh, hospitals programs throughout the country that are struggling with getting that service documentation. And uh, it's really tying the hands of some very skilled uh, biomed techs and engineers in order to do their job. They're more than more than capable of supporting this technology, uh, but without the appropriate uh, maintenance tools, diagnostics, it's really a bothersome. That's been going on forever. That continues to be a big, big sore spot uh, for, for many, many places. Then um, you combine that. The other issues we're having also is just uh, trying to find skilled help. Our workforce, at least in the States, uh, is progressively getting older and older, and we're seeing more and more retirements, and uh, we, we don't have the educational pipeline uh, in place to, uh, to fill some of these voids. So, uh, you know, finding the skilled help, uh, Always got the budget issues, as you mentioned about, of sending the staff off to appropriate service schools if you can find one. And um, so I think the right to repair issues are big. 
the networking of everything is adding a whole other dimension of complexity, especially from a systems perspective. You know, before a system was just maybe the patient room, the technology, the clinician, the human factors issue. Now, once things are all networked, you, you've just multiplied and magnified the, the complexity of the systems things going on. Um, and that takes specialized knowledge, specialized tools. There's a whole set of specialized problems that result when you start networking all of these different devices. And uh, yeah, things are getting very complex. And then as you mentioned, if you start moving all the elective surgery things out, especially now, there's a lot of lost revenue there. Uh, so we're seeing uh, very skilled staff, they're being furloughed or laid off. And, uh, and there's a lot, a lot of uh, incredible value and talent that goes out the door when, you, when you've got maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars in training in a, in, a, in a technician or an engineer, and you somehow let them go or do not take care of them. Um, uh, it's, it's just an incredible waste in trying to recover that. It may have taken years to build up a technician to service, you know, uh, linear accelerators and MRCT scanners. That's not a, those are not trivial technologies. They take a lot of training and uh, you just don't want to let those people go uh, for what they, what they bring to the table and what they save us. So. It's a, uh, I mean, uh... Well, there's a word to describe it. It's knowledge management, right? Like it's it's an it's an area of opportunity that that we have. You know, just getting those uh, technicians to record all of their experience uh, so that the hospital. I mean, everybody has to grow, right? Everybody is seeking for more challenges, for uh, more payrolls, etc. And 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 I and I know that you know, although I mean, generations are changing, and, and we seem to spend less and less time working in one single place because we want to learn, we want to travel, etc. cetera. Uh, but there's a big problem as well. You know, knowledge management is, is something that, uh, you know, costs more preparing person uh, that might leave tomorrow than hiring a, a company that is specialized in that and has all the knowledge and, and resources available. It's uh, fairly interesting. So um, Dr. Frenico, if we've, we spend uh, you know, some time talking uh, and we can go on because I have uh, lots of questions that I would, you know, I've been waiting more than uh, 10 years to ask. Uh, oh, okay. and some of them have been answered on, on this podcast. Um, but hopefully uh, we will have you uh, here for many, many more times. Uh, my last question is a personal question and uh, it may be a, a tricky question that makes you you know, go back uh, for a while because things, you know, 10 months ago were really different uh, than the way they were, when they are right now. So I would like to ask you, if you could, if you're, if you could talk to yourself, to your younger self five years ago, um, and you, you've seen what, what, you know, the situation of the crisis are right now we are in, how things have changed, uh, you know, healthcare wise, of course, politically wise, and, you know, all of the, of the, ongoing world uh, topics that have been going on. If you could talk to yourself five years ago, what, what advice would you give, you know, Larry Feninko five years ago by, this, by the things you, that you've seen now? Yeah, that's a real, real good one. And um, it probably took me well over 10, 15 plus years before I ever got a clue. Uh, in retrospect, I wish I would have had a seasoned mentor that could have worked with me to help me understand and navigate the, the, the organizational politics, 
the realities of the healthcare environment. Uh, I, I went into healthcare just completely clueless about uh, you know the, the politics, the, the psychology, the dynamics, the pro and con of how people get along and how they don't get along, the, the, the unwritten power structures within the organization uh, and the influence they had on getting things done or not getting things done. And um, it wasn't so much that I was naive or didn't know that those things were going on. I, I just had a misguided resolve of, uh, I don't want to play in that sandbox. This is not what I'm here to do. I'm an engineering and I'm a manager. Uh, I, I'm not into all of these, this mind game stuff and the stuff that was very, very, very foreign to me. Um, uh, I just didn't know how to play in that, in that space. And as a result, I, I got myself crossways with many administrators over the years, uh, many medical directors, uh, head, head of nurses. And um, not that I was trying to be a, a crazy mean guy or anything. It's just that um, there was just, we were at odds. It was almost like a two North Poles of a magnet, you know, insisting that you're going to cooperate. Well, no, it just didn't fit my psyche at the time. So in retrospect, I would have welcomed uh, a seasoned trusted mentor that could have taken me aside and said, Larry, when uh, you're dealing with this particular group of people, here's what's going on. Here's what you want to be sensitive to or conscious of, and just don't go into a meeting like in a bowl in a tiny china shop thinking science and Ohm's law will prevail and technology dictates everything that should go on. Uh, there is many, many more things and sides to these issues than just the technology piece. And, uh, and that was a part that I wasn't always aware of uh, and didn't quite know how to handle it. And uh, yeah, in retrospect, I would have, um, I don't know how open and receptive I would have been though five years ago. I'd like to think that if I had the right mentor, uh, they could have smacked me gently, smacked me around a little bit, woken me up. Um, I, I would have liked to have hoped that I could have been receptive, but, uh, uh, and I have a lot of anecdotal accounts from peers around the country that also came in crosswise and they may have lost their jobs because of a, a conflict they had gotten into and, um, you know, completely naive and clueless. They had no intention of doing anything wrong. They just were clueless on how to deal with this invisible, but very, very powerful uh, organizational dynamics and power structure. So, um, yeah, if there was any, and I don't know how you teach stuff like that. I don't know how you can have a course uh, in that, but other than through a trusted mentor person that had been around the block a few times that could guide through some of those minefields that uh, I wasn't able to do. Well, experience teaches everything and, and sure uh, time and experience have done you very, very well as uh, you've been successful in, in plenty of uh, clinical engineering areas. And uh, we hope to have, you know, just enough time to just deconstruct what you've accomplished and teach others. Because at the end of the day, this is part of, of making our, our industry grow, our sector grow. And teaching professionals is something that I encourage, you know, all the listeners that are hearing us today and our viewers through Facebook to just be empathic about, you know, the future generations and, and, and try to be patient about things because uh, the world of social media, the world of data, the world of, you know, all this information that comes in, sometimes it, it's blinding 
and uh, doesn't give you enough time or, or space to just analyze things as they are. And I think that always a fresh uh, point of view from somebody else might give us, you know, the, the right path to take. Um, so it, I, I really agree with what you're saying. It's, uh, it's important to have an outsider's perspectives and, and, and also a seasoned uh, experience as well. Um, well, we've come to the, the end of the podcast, uh, okay. Dr. Larry. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Okay. On the last uh, part, I would like to ask you, do you have any comments, suggestions, tips, uh, maybe a motivational manage, a message you want to send out to our listeners, our viewers through Facebook. So is there a message that you would like to share with them? Well, yeah, I guess in general, again, I really appreciate you doing this, Louis. This is a great opportunity to get the word out, especially now uh, bringing people in to share their experiences. These kinds of things are incredibly helpful. <clears throat> I think one thing to um, <clears throat> take away is to just stay ever mindful how incredibly dependent the caregivers are on the technology. Uh, and never lose sight of that, that uh, it could be your mom, your dad, your own child, uh, yourself, your spouse, one of these days that are dependent on this technology and treat every one of these service calls, every encounter that you might in, uh, be up against with that, with that consciously in the forefront of your mind, this, uh, how important our work is. And if you just stay, uh, if you continue to love what you do and believe in what you're doing, uh, there's almost a, uh, aura that'll probably surround you and those around you will see that they may not understand what you do or how you do it but they'll they'll pick up on wow this this dude is really plugged in and cares about what they're doing and many of us in this field are like that that's what makes us kind of unique from other support functions um, is the dedication the commitment to what it is we're all about and if you can continue to bring that in every day despite getting banged up and beat up and castrated and sliced you know and diced uh, after the end of the day, if you can bring in uh, your love for what you're doing and a belief in what you're doing, I think that'll go a long way in just uh, helping us get up the next day <laughs> and go at it again. And um, it'll also help others understand what we're all about a little bit better as well. So the passion, keep the passion up. Uh, even when you're all beat up, take a day off, recover, and then go back at it. So. Dr. Larry Finninko, it has been a pleasure and an honor to host you here at the show, uh, which is mainly with the purpose of, of telling the story of, of your professional career, your life. And we're deeply honored to have you here as, uh, you know, some people like me do admire what, what you've done and accomplished. So uh, thank you very much. You have here you know, the open door for whenever you, you want to express anything regarding a, uh, maybe a, a situation that you lived or, or, or just an opinion about things. So okay. uh, thank you very much. We are deeply honored again, and we'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you very much.